The stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman grew up in a family with lots of money. Even though she was wealthy and could have access to the finest, her parents made sure she experienced manual labor and public school and grew up understanding the importance of values. As a young woman, she was shy and non-traditional. Her education was in economics and government, and her first marriage was to a Roman Catholic priest. But as life twisted and turned, she realized she was not living to her full potential and began to seek ways to make a major impact. In March 2019, she heard details about 10 to 12-year-old girls being forced to have sex several times a night with strangers. It broke her heart, and she knew she had to do something to help. Today, she is walking her path to greatness as she uses her wealth, influence, and prestige to change the horrific reality of human trafficking. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Mitzi Perdue. Hi, Mitzi. Thank you for joining me today. Annette, what a complete joy to be with you, and I love the premise of your podcast. Well, thank you so much, and I'm so glad you're here with me today. And you have so much wisdom, Mitzi, I want to uncover, so I'm going to jump right on in. Your mantra was, show up as a team member so it makes it easier for the next woman. Explain how this way of thinking allows you to impact women. When I started in my career, and we're talking the early 1960s, there were a lot of jobs that women hadn't done yet. And the trajectory of my career was to be in non-traditional jobs for women, such as how about agriculture, farm broadcasting. I was a management intern at Treasury, the economics part, and there were 21 men and me. So at least for the nine-tenths of my career, I've been in non-traditional jobs for women. They called me a pioneer. But now we're coming to the mantra. I was aware that, you know, that I was the first woman in, in many of the jobs that, that I took or that I managed to worm my way into. And knowing that I was a first, I knew that people were watching. I mean, I, I can think of like economics classes where there would be 200 men and me. Or as a management intern, you know, I was one of just a forest of men. All right. Knowing that, I wanted to make sure that my performance would be such that I would make it easier for them to want to hire the next woman. I wanted to be so good, so much of a team member, so much of somebody who contributed that they'd think, oh, hey, it's great to hire a woman. And so that is what I tried to do my entire career, make it easier for the next woman. And don't you think that that is still a good mantra to live by? Yes. I'll give an example of a woman whom I would not copy. I won't mention the name of the company, but it, it was one that I was heavily involved with. It was an insurance company. And she went around suing the people who hired her. Since I, as a woman, had my sort of feelers out finding out what was really going on. And I hate to say this, but, but this is my judgment of this particular case. The woman's lawsuits were, to my mind, almost frivolous. And I disliked this woman intensely because she was doing the opposite of what I wanted to do. Whoever the hiring manager was, you know, looking at how she behaved, probably wasn't that eager to hire the next woman. So yeah, be an employee that 
makes them want to hire the next woman, not one that says, Ugh, I don't want them. They're trouble. They don't help the team be better. So you were always wanting them to say, I want more of the Mitzis in the world. I'm not saying I achieved it. Well, but, but that's what we'd all like, wouldn't it? Yes. Because that yeah, means I, that they want more women, truly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I can promise you that was the goal. Absolutely. So I'm going to stay in this space a little bit. So we all experience failure uh, as women and as human beings, and you're certainly no different. How did you learn to handle failure so it didn't define you as a failure? I don't think you get through any part of life. I don't think you get through a year without some kind of failure. And that's assuming that you're not just staying home watching TV. So I'll tell you the trajectory of my career. I think I had a really good education. I I was a Harvard graduate. I had a master's in public administration. But there was something that held me back, and it was actually fear of failure, which was which is strong enough so that somewhere around age 34, I was looking around at my life and thinking, no, I haven't done any of the things that I really wanted to do. I had hungered for a career in communications, radio, television, newspaper, public speaking. But what I was doing was I was managing a rice farm. I think it's crucially important work. I'm proud of every moment I spend in that in, as, in agriculture. But it wasn't doing what I'd prepared for, what I really wanted to do. And then something happened that changed my whole life's trajectory, which is a guy, actually, he worked for me. He was a tenant farmer on my farm. He had an extraordinary gift. He had an IQ of 200. Well, his life goal was to write a great book. But at age 68, he was diagnosed with terminal heart disease. And he realized, you know, I've spent my whole life preparing to write the great book. And now with terminal heart disease, I can't do it. Well, a miracle happened. He went to something called the Pritikin Clinic, which is just really, really good with people with heart disease. And after a month there of diet, exercise, meditation, just a whole lifestyle change for him, something wonderful happened. His heart disease reversed. And his his own doctor said, you know, this is a miracle. And this man who couldn't walk across my office floor without crippling pain suddenly could walk five miles a day. And in fact, he lived another, well, he lived into his 90s. Well, when he came back with this wonderful news that that his heart had revascularized and that he wasn't going to die, I told him, Peter, this is the most wonderful news I've ever heard. Write your book. (laughs) And he said, well, yes, I'm just about to. I have to do a little bit more research and I'll be ready. Oh, my. Well, I'm going to bet that everybody can guess the end of the story. Never did write his book. Well, hearing that, I realized, because I knew him pretty well, I realized that he wasn't putting himself out on a limb writing a book and risking failure. That's what kept him from even starting. Right. And I started thinking, hey. That's me. I haven't, you know, sent articles out. I haven't done auditions. I haven't written proposals. I was afraid of failure too. And pretty much at the moment when Peter said, I'm just about to, and I knew he never would, at that moment, I decided that I would make my life the opposite of Peter's. Peter was afraid of failure, but he did the one thing guaranteed to produce failure, which was not to try. So I decided. I would redefine failure. Failure is not trying. Failure is not giving it your all. And if you have a particular goal and you got to turn down, that's 
a badge of success because it meant that you tried. And in the process of trying, here's what happens. You're going to probably take courses, read books, listen to podcasts, talk with people, meet people, attend conventions. You're going to do things that will get you farther along the possibility of success. So every time you fail, every time you get that rejection, that turned down, you didn't get the job you were trying for, redefine failure. It's not that you didn't get that particular thing. No, it's a great big blooming success because you tried and you gave it your all. And now you're closer. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share with you what happened in my case. Within one year of doing things that I've been scared to try, and along the way, accumulating loads of turndowns and, and what to the world might look like failures. But just by putting myself out there on a huge scale, I ended up with a TV show, a radio show, a syndicated column, and I began doing public speaking. And it all came, at least from the way it looks to me, that I changed my attitude towards failure. Failure isn't that you don't succeed in your immediate goal. Failure is not putting yourself out there and trying. Yeah, and I think that's so wise, Mitzi. I really do. And I hope those listening take that to heart because I think we shortchange ourselves when we don't even try, for sure. All right, so I'm going to move into something that you told me about your father that I thought was just brilliant. And I really want you to share it with those listening. When you were growing up, your father would have a family hour each week that was so valuable to you understanding and, and developing that understanding of the world. So please share what this looked like and how busy parents can use this same approach as a way of routine to teach and bond with their children. Right. My father, he was the president and co-founder of the whole Sheraton hotel chain. At its height, he employed 20,000 people and we did sell it on his death. So I'm not currently connected with Sheraton. But even though he was a captain of industry and surely a very busy man, for him, family was just of ultimate importance. And the time that he did give us, I think I would classify it as extreme quality time because every Sunday after church services, or after family lunch also, he would have an hour devoted just to his children and he would be teaching us values or information that, that he thought would help us through life. And by the way, he would prepare for this the way I might prepare to teach a course. And he did this once a week. He would do things like he'd explain to us how the stock market worked, what a bond was, why it's okay to spend your income, but don't spend the principal, why it's important to be frugal. Examples from, I don't know, grandparents or great-grandparents where they struggled and maybe even went bankrupt. One, one ancestor, great-grandfather went, went bankrupt three times. But and the point of the story that father told was he was resilient. He didn't let failure define him. He went right back into the fray and he paid off all his creditors and in the end ended up a very wealthy man. But stories like that give you guidance for how you get through life. So advice that I'd give to everybody is, well, there's a principle, which is every family that exists has a culture and culture means the way we do things. If you leave it to accident, Eh, your kids may be subject to a whole lot of things that you don't want, like drugs, pregnancy before marriage, getting in trouble with the law. There are a whole lot of things that the culture could of, of the world could lead kids towards. Instead of having a culture that came about by accident, have one that comes about by design. Like father 
spending an hour each week teaching his kids values that he hoped would help them have a good, successful, knowledgeable, real-world life. And I, I know when you first told me about that, I could see in your eyes and in your voice how much that hour meant to you growing up. It was the highlight of the week for you. Well, to me, it was just overpoweringly wonderful that, that Father would spend this time with us. I, I mean, he spent time at family meals and so forth, but no, this was one hour just specifically dedicated to helping us navigate life. But it, was, it wasn't just uh, business or family stories. It would be things like we had family band where we would each play an instrument. Not a cool way for a family to bond. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, a lot of entertainment and laughter at the same time, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it was just such a cool thing for a parent to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So you grew up in a family with lots of money, and you have had access to wealth most of your life. And you have chosen to look for ways to use it to impact the world. So what are ways that you have been intentional in this effort? Well, one of the things that I do, but this was encouraged by my family of origin, the Hendersons, which was the Sheraton family. We were always encouraged to be frugal, that you get your identity through service, not through buying expensive things. So none of my siblings you know, bought yachts or private jets. They could have. And in my own case, I don't want to spend money on, on status things. For me, I'm indifferent. I travel economy class unless I happen to have an, an upgrade. And that's so that I can save money to be able to use it to help others because my particular cause is human trafficking. I'm going to pick an idea out of, out of the air almost. It happens to be an accurate one. For 10 years, I visited China every year. I, I, I became extremely fond of a Chinese family, and they used to invite me to come with them on, on their family vacation. Woohoo! I mean, that was great. But to travel there, I could go first class, and that's $12,000, $14,000, or I could go economy. In every single case, I went economy. I mean, I could certainly afford the first class, but if I go economy, that means I have somewhere around $13,000 that I can give like to the food bank or, or some other cause that I care about. To me, it's a much greater source of joy to think that, that I've supported a charity than that I went first class. Interesting. I love that. human trafficking. So I want to talk about that for a second, because that is something that has your full attention these days. Are women in a better position to change this type of situation? And do you think women underestimate their power to influence and implement change? Well, to answer that question, let's go back to, well, the early 1800s, when the absolute scourge of slavery was in the United States. What changed it? And it wasn't just a civil war. No, it was people became morally aware that this is just a completely unthinkable monstrosity and we've got to change it. And you know, first, a few people, including my ancestors out of Boston, the abolitionists, a small group of people began thinking it, then larger and larger until finally we, what I take to be America's original sin, and that is legalized slavery. Now, fast forward to we're in 2021. What would it take to get rid of human slavery, of 
the kind that's going on right now. And that's, I'll give a statistic from the United Nations. The United Nations says that there are 40 million people in slavery today. And just to give a feeling for the size of that number, that would be every man, woman, and child in, in California. Or it would be, take the population of, of New York City, take five New York cities and put them all together. And that would be the number of slave, people in slavery. And you asked about women. I, I consider women to be kind of the guardians of, of living decent lives and caring for each other. Well, I want women all over the world just to rise up and say, no, this has got to stop. We've got to do what it takes to stop it. Yeah. We are the moral fiber in so many ways, aren't we? I think so. doesn't I mean, mean that men don't impact it as well, but there seems to be an essence about women that seems to... I'm going to get evolutionary on you. Okay. And that is, back to cavemen's times, way, way, way back, you know, kind of how how men and women started really interacting with each other, the man would go out and hunt and bring home the game. And what was the woman's job? It was to make sure, I mean, she didn't go out hunting herself in most cases. No, typically she'd be the one who would make sure that everybody in the cave got what they needed. You know, she was sort of the nurturing one. And I think women still have something of that in us. We're the ones who are out there to see that people are fairly treated. We're, we're not the aggressive ones out killing the mastodon, right. we're there trying to make sure that everybody gets something to eat. Right, right. I agree. I agree. So staying in this human trafficking space for a second, to support organizations that are working to stop human trafficking, you raise funds via an anti-trafficking auction. But it's like any other approach that I've ever heard. Share how this way of fundraising works and how others need to think outside the box when it comes to raising money for causes they deeply care about? Well, when I first got into human trafficking, and you mentioned that a couple of years ago, I heard a lecture about how, again, United Nations figures, there are a million children who are being sex trafficked. And sex trafficking, by the way, means that like a 10-year-old girl might be forced to have sex with strangers 10, 20 times a night, and her life expectancy is less than seven years because she's going to commit suicide, she's going to overdose, she's going to die of a disease, or she's going to be murdered for organ harvesting. I decided when I heard about this that I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing anything that I could to help stop it. It's going to take millions of people to stop it. But how about everybody does what they can? And I started casting around thinking, what could I do? What is in my talent stack and my background and my my resources where I could do something, preferably at the highest and best level that I could. And I began interviewing up to recently, I've I've probably interviewed maybe 70 heads of anti-trafficking organizations. And what they need is, first of all, funding, because the more funding they have, the, the greater their outreach can be, and the less time they can spend fundraising and instead delivering service. So they need funding and they need awareness. Because they're not going to get funding when people aren't aware of it. And the problem isn't going to stop until we reach a tipping point where the world rises up and says, stop this. So what could I do? Well, there's a desk that belongs to a de' Medici cardinal. We think it came from the year 1600. I own it. I inherited it. And it occurred to me that if I put it up to auction, 
first of all, it would raise a lot of money and I would give it to an anti-trafficking organization. But then on top of that, it would raise a lot of awareness because the newspapers would talk about something historically important and that would raise awareness about human trafficking. But then it occurred to me one magic moment. You know, if I was in that situation where I have something, a material object, tangible property. Okay, I'm, I'm supposing that I'm an ultra high. I'm not supposing. I'm thinking of, of people that I know of who are ultra high net worth. And a lot of them probably are in the situation where they have very interesting objects that might be worth a million dollars or more that are in storage. I have a relative even I know who probably has a hundred paintings in storage. Each one of them might be worth a million dollars. This is somebody who's done very well in life and he keeps buying more art. And I've, I've heard him and his wife quarrel where she says, we aren't showing one one hundredth of what we got. Why do you want another? Well, people like that, if they had the opportunity to turn a tangible piece of property into cash through an auction, maybe they'd be willing to do it knowing the good that they could do. And here's the kind of donations that have come in. The best is a 69.7 carat ruby that belonged to a Qing dynasty emperor. We believe this perfect ruby uh, was carved 300 years ago. When that comes up to auction, and the donor in this case wants it to go to an educational institution in India, the donors from, from Taiwan, one factor with this auction that, that we're working on, to get into, to be a part of the auction, you have to have an item that's appraised at a million dollars or more, and it has to have a story. And it's just astonishing the things that people are pledging. When that gets auctioned, there are four public relations firms that are, are part of this effort. And I expect that all over the world, people are going to know about that and will bid for it. Other items include one of the world's larger perfect emeralds, 12 dinner plates. Oh, no, let me get to another one. A necklace, a diamond and sapphire necklace appraised at a million dollars that belonged to Marlena Dietrich. You've had a lot of fun gathering these things up, haven't you? Yeah, except that... Uh, my rule is I want people to keep possession of, of their items until a couple of months before the auction. Sure. Because I don't want to. <laughs> you want the, <laughs> you the temptation for thieves. I'd say you'd become a target real quick, girl. <laughs> and, how, and how. But the idea is two months before the auction, it gets delivered to the auction house, which I would love to tell you the name of it. But the, one of the more special things about this effort is the particular auction house, it's a New York one, a global auction house, because they support anti-trafficking, they're willing to forego their commission. Which oh my made, goodness. No, that's staggering because- Oh, it is. It's significant. Necklace. He told me that he, he wanted to give it to charity. He wanted to give it to anti-trafficking. But he told me that if he went through a jewelry broker, they'd take 40%. If he went through a regular auction, they'd take 20%. This way, 100% of what it raises goes to the anti-trafficking organization of its choice. Well, and I want to tell you what I like about what you're doing is that you have taken your circle of influence of people that do have a lot of very valuable assets and have challenged them to say, you know, how much more do you need? Let's take some of this and help me help others do this. And I think that's a beautiful thing, Mitzi, and I, I applaud you 
for doing that because you're in a position where you can do that and you're not wasting that. So thank you for doing that. I'm going to ask you, Mitzi, is there anything else about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with others? Well, as a matter of fact, yes. And please notice how color-coordinated I am, the flowers and this, because what you're looking at is, remember Rosie the Riveter, the, the hypothetical woman who 75 years ago left her living room and went out to work in the factories, freeing men to, to be soldiers and, and defeat the Nazis. I mean, she played an incredible role. Well, one of the volunteers for Win This Fight, and I'm going to give uh, in a moment, if you'll permit me, a way to get hold of me and to join in this. One of the volunteers for Win This Fight uh, thought, instead of Rosie the Riveter from 75 years ago, what if we have a Rosie the Liberator of a 75th anniversary, I don't know, maybe just appreciation of what she did, but this is a 21st century version of it. And we're asking people, including everybody who's listening to us or watching us right now, to make a rosy pose. You know, you make a muscle and you look at your fist. And if you have a bandana, great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. And if you're a guy, you can be Rusty the Riveter. And what we'd like you to do is take a selfie. It doesn't have to be elaborate at all. It's just the only thing that counts is that you're making a muscle and you're, you're staring at your fist. <laughs> uh, Put it on social media. And if you already belong to an anti-trafficking organization, donate $5 to that anti-trafficking organization and invite two of your friends to join you in this. And I'd also like you to send an image of it to me. And the way to do that is to text WTF. And that's short for win this fight in case you were wondering what WTF is meaning in this case. And yes, I certainly know what it means. But text <laughs> WTF to 51555. So that's 51555. Do that and it will tell you more about the Rosie the Liberator campaign. And you'll also get to see some really cool images that other people have had because, you know, like one person did her, her dog. Another person, I don't know how she did this, but she had a whole scarf that imitates Rosie the Riveter, except that somehow she put the the words on it, Rosie the Liberator. And we're, I know right now that there are artists who, who are painting like photorealistic images or very modern abstract ones. So come join us. And once you're there, what I'd really like from you is sign up for my blog because you'll find really interesting things, really encouraging things, examples of things you can do, examples of organizations you might like to work for. But on the other hand, if you want to work for Win This Fight, oh boy, we'll fight. My goal is for you to be contributing at your highest and best level. And I won't ask you for more time than you want to donate, but I think you'll love the ride because, you know, dark as, as human trafficking is, the fact that we're doing something about it is, it, it's one of the more fulfilling things I've ever experienced. Yeah. And, it, and it's something that needs to stop for sure, Mitzi. Mitzi, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule of raising money for all these organizations and all the things that you've got your fingers into. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here and let you share all your wisdom. Well, I can't tell you how much I enjoy you and your format and your premise. So thank you for including me. And 
Mitzi is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 